He said, no one's going to give you a job. I said, what do you mean? He said, all you're capable of doing is dropping bombs on people and shooting aeroplanes out of the sky. I said, are you serious? He said, yeah, I'm deadly serious. He said, what happened to that business plan you wrote? Oh, I don't know. It's on my bookshelf somewhere. And he said, was it true or did you make it all up? And I said, no, no, it was all true. And he said, well, why don't you start that company? And that was the start of Nova Systems. Despite the incompetence of senior management, um, the company's grown to over a thousand people. G'day and welcome everyone to episode number 71 of On The Step with That Mallard Guy. I'm your host, Dan Bolton. On The Step is all about float planes and flying boats. To get in contact with me, my email is dan at thatmallardguy.com or you can follow me on Instagram and send me a message at thatmallardguy. Don't forget folks to leave the show a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts or if you're listening via Spotify, click the five-star button at the top of my channel, folks. It's super easy and certainly means a lot. It's great to be back again with another top-notch episode, everyone. As you heard in the intro there, today's guest is going to be bringing a little extra to the show with some stories outside the float world, but man, what great stories they are, but don't stress there is some more quality listening regarding seaplane stories in there as well. Before we jump into that, folks, uh, just a quick update of what's been happening with myself in my world. Special announcement, everyone. Calendars are back. 2024 That Mallard Guy calendars have been ordered, and I'll be very shortly announcing details on how to order your own calendar for next year. I'll most likely do a bonus episode to talk about it via the podcast, so keep an eye out for that one. The Buccaneer training is going great up here in Darwin. Congrats to Trent Robinson and Peter Antonenko, who recently ticked off their floating hull endorsements with me on the Buccaneer there. Uh, I have another fella booked in this weekend, actually, so really looking forward to getting out there again and splashing around. Um... I've also just taken a couple of weeks off the Mallard flying to fill in for the Horizontal Falls Seaplane Adventures team over in Broome. I mean, what else do seaplane pilots do on leave? They go seaplane flying, of course, folks. It was some uh, awesome fun there flying with a great bunch of people on the Cessna caravan. Absolutely loved it. Every day, five amphibious caravans would depart Broome and fly all day long, taking people back and forward to the Horizontal Falls it's completely nuts how busy that operation is. So good to see. Uh, the flying was absolutely spectacular. Low level over the Buccaneer Archipelago. Whale spotting down the coast of Cape Levique. Making approaches down Cyclone Creek there and landing on Talbot Bay. Going through the horizontal falls on their fast boats. It was just a, a mind-blowing experience and absolutely spectacular as well. Also, the flying there was actually a really good challenge, you know, changing it up from my regular work back into the single pilot air transport operations, back into float plane flying rather than on the hull, you know, back into tourism work. You know, the whole experience, while short, it's only there for about two and a half weeks in total, um, it was just very rewarding and enjoyable. So uh, that was a great experience. However, folks, it's certainly great to be back in the Mallard, that's for sure. Now, also... I have something special. I can't say a lot right now, okay? But I do have a little project in the pipeline I'll be announcing hopefully in the next couple of weeks, okay? Very soon. It's something I am very excited about. I've been thinking about this for a very long time and uh, it's nearly come to fruition. 
and I can't wait to share with you all, folks. But until then, my lips are sealed, all right? Okay, now enough out of me, everyone. I know why you're all here, and that's to hear from another one of these incredible guests that I get on this show. And like I said before, this guy is no exception. Now, last year in the month of April, I embarked on what would end up being one of the most exciting weeks of my aviation career, training seven highly experienced pilots how to fly the floating hull aircraft on a 75-year-old Republic CB. Now, I'd always dreamed of flying the CB. I'd heard so many good things about it, but down in Australia here, never had the chance to even see one until I was actually in formation with the one I was about to instruct on, sitting in a gazelle helicopter, a helicopter I've never even heard of before, with the great man and my guest today, Jim Wally at the controls. Let's fire up the geared Lycoming. On hearing the engine come to life, we'll untie from the dock and reverse backwards away from the shoreline. Closing the unique nose hatch and reinserting the co-pilot control column, we'll taxi out into the deeper water of Lake Alexandrina, keeping our noise signature as far away from the houses that call the lake frontage home. With a glance out of the bulbous nose to check our takeoff path is clear, we'll push the power lever forward gently, getting the noisy beast up and on the step. Right engine is turning. 12% fuel. A lot. Alrighty, welcome to On the Step. He's a former F 18 Hornet pilot, graduate of the Empire Test Pilot School in the UK, co founder of the engineering services and technology solutions company Nova Systems. He's also the owner of multiple badass aircraft, including a CAC boomerang. Marchetti S211 military fighter jet trainer and gazelle helicopter. But best of all, folks, and the thing we are all impressed with the most, he's a seaplane pilot and owns a beautiful 1947 model Republic CB. Jim Wally, welcome finally to On The Step. Uh, Dan, thanks for having me. Great to be here and uh, great to be here with your viewers. Yeah, exactly, mate. It's um, something I've been trying to get... uh, on for a, a good year or so since we met up in April last year and uh, I, I first of all want to thank you for your patience. I've been uh, trying to tee this interview up a few times with you and um, you know life just gets in the way. I think what last time it was the baby, you know. Yeah, no, your one, imagine. not mine, mate. Your one. Yeah, well, mine. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Once again, mate, thank you for having uh, for coming on the show and uh, talking about uh, your career and especially some seaplane stuff. I obviously gave you a fair wrap there, and there's a lot to talk about with your career. But mate, I want to jump into the the seaplane aspect straight away. Sure. And why don't we talk about um, what was the inspiration behind buying a Republic CB? I mean, you were flying the fastest aircraft in the world, and you now own one of the slowest. Um, well, that's that's true, and then maybe that was part of the appeal. But uh, um, Dan, as you know, um, Steve Barlow and I, my good mate, who you know who co-owns the aircraft with me. We learned to fly seaplanes in Alaska. I reckon it was about 2009, 2010. And uh, we went up there and uh, learned on some Piper Cubs with floats. And uh, we had a great time and then had some friends who lived in um, Seattle and uh, flew from Anchorage 
down the west coast of Alaska and uh, Canada to Seattle, Seattle, and a couple of Havilland Beavers, and it was just great fun. Loved it. You know, scenery obviously fabulous, and went to places that you just couldn't go unless you had a seaplane. Um, and after we got back, uh, I guess we just you know didn't do a lot with it. And, and Steve and I kept talking about we must get a um, a seaplane, and uh, we just just didn't do much about it. And eventually, I'd, I'd sort of I tend to cruise the web looking for weird and wonderful aircraft and uh, came across the, the CB, which number one is very unique looking, but also has a bit of history and it's, um, you know, it was, it was nice because it was amphibian too. And I, I tend to like airplanes that do have some history and got a bit of Asian character about them and um, um, uh, convinced Steve that um, we should buy one of these, uh, which the aircraft was in Canada and um, I'm sure it had its registration while it was um, in Canada was um Charlie uh, Foxtrot Bravo Uniform Mike. Um, so it became affectionately known as Fat Bum. And um, we packed it in, well, we had it packed into a container, shipped out to Australia, and, and then started the, um, the lengthy process of um, getting it ready to fly in Australia. Um, a large part of which was the paperwork because uh, there's not actually any CBs flying in Australia and it hasn't been for several years. But um, I have to say it was all worth it in the end. Um, you've flown it, you know. It's um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful aircraft on the water. Um, on the land, it has some interesting characteristics. Yeah. Well, why don't we start off with with on the land part of it? Because yeah, as if people don't know what the aeroplane is, definitely worth a Google. It's a very bulbous looking um, hull shape on it with a a very thin tail that runs you know runs out to the tail like a boom almost from that from that bulbous you know almost I, I think of it almost like a cable car. Um, you know, canopy type thing, or the you know the whole capsule, and uh, running with that that boom out to the tail there, and then strap some wings on it as well. But it's a it's a it's a tailwheel aircraft as well. So you also have that those issues with with tailwheel aircraft. But this one has that very narrow tailwheel base, doesn't it? It's a bit difficult to fly. Well, it, it, it's challenging. It's, uh, it certainly doesn't like a crosswind, and because the um, the tailwheel itself is well. In front of the vertical stab, any any um, crosswind um, really does put a disproportionate amount of um, uh, force, and, and keeping it straight, even just taxiing it, is um, is really hard work, even even against the brakes. But um, you know, one of the things about it is it's um, it's not a, an aeroplane that's easy to fly, and, and the part I guess I like about that is when you do actually get a good landing in, um, you know, it's um, it's uh, it's good job satisfaction. Yep. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's got other appeals, like it, the fact that it is, you know, coming up to uh, it's seventy-five years old, coming up to eighty years old, and um, uh, you know, it's it's had a, an interesting uh, history in the movies. It appeared in a James Bond movie um, with Roger Moore. Um, I think it was the Man with the uh, um, the Golden Gun or something like that. And um, there's quite an interesting sequence you can see on YouTube of it uh, flying. And for those. Um, who are um, eagle-eyed, you will notice in the uh, clip on YouTube, it's flying around quite happily um, with uh, two of its um, its floats on the, on the wings. When it comes in land, one is missing. And in the end, that actual aircraft got destroyed? Was that Blown up, blown up yeah, it did. Got blown it up, yeah. In the movie or was it actual real life? I think it really, it both in, in, in the yeah. movie and in real life, which was a yeah. bit of a shame. 
I wanted to touch now on the on the water aspect, mate, and uh, that's probably where I step in a little bit more. You know, I was given a phone call, a random phone call last year, part of the seaplane training that I'm doing here with the Buccaneer, allows me to get out and and help people like yourself, owners of of seaplanes who uh, need to get that training done when they have their own aircraft. Particularly and, uh, those, yeah, this... particularly those like me who aren't that competent. <laughs> Well, yeah, you said you only just just touched on the water really in Alaska, but um, yeah, got this random phone call, mate, to come down to uh, uh, a bunch of guys who own a CB and do about five endorsements. Uh, I think it was at the time that was the plan. I think we ended up doing seven in about ten days, which was pretty crazy, and and fly this CB and yeah, get down there, meet you, Jim. It was just all all guns, you know, blazing once I once I got out of that high car and. Um, and at the airport, I think we, we did a lap in the Gazelle together and uh, was watching the CB take off on the runway with a couple of the guys doing there, some land circuits there, just getting used to those tailwheel characteristics. And then I think that afternoon, you and I jumped into it and uh, put it on the water. And that was the first time I think it had been on the water for a fair few years. And it was quite the boat, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it, and it was. I don't, I don't think it's been on the water for sort of six or seven years. So it was... Um... No, it was fascinating for me and, and Dan. I guess for you, as an, a very experienced seaplane pilot, interested in your first sports when you when you first flew it as well. It was cool from my perspective because I I don't think I'd ever just well. I mean, you always jump in new aeroplanes, but you've generally got someone who's flown that aeroplane before. So I guess from my perspective, to fly this aeroplane for the first time, getting in a CB for the first time, we did a couple of land circuits, I think, with yourself and a bit of general handling, but. To go down there and, and approach the water, even with a fair bit of seaplane experience, was um, I was a little bit nervous about it, I guess. And but I think I bounced a little bit off you, Jim, from that test pilot, you know, background um, to to make sure that I'm not doing anything stupid. Um, but it was, um, yeah, I couldn't believe for an aircraft uh, of its shape, it was such a good boat on the water. And um, for something that should, a- doesn't for something that doesn't look as though it should fly at all. Yeah, exactly. It uh, it handled the water really well. It, there was no porpoise characteristics. Um, it was really really easy to manoeuvre, and um, you know that that week of aviation fun just started off um, from that point there, didn't it? And then uh, we 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 jumped in and we did a couple of other endorsements with Martin uh, from Adelaide Biplanes, and um, I think you and Brendan Kelly, uh, yep, the great Brendy, the great um, Brendy, chief, the great uh, Brendy, he'll be listening, chief pilot of. I think Bond and CHC and others. Yeah, yeah. So. very experienced helicopter pilot. You know, jumped in and um, we we got the job done on on an amazing week of of seaplane flying and, and just flying in general, really, wasn't it? Mm. And a bit of other things that I, you know, I think uh, one of my one of my um, my very fond memories is um, is flying in formation with the CB with the S two eleven, which has yes. a you know a hundred knot, hundred and five knot threshold speed. <laughs> and um, flying in formation with the CB at about 80 knots <laughs> and wondering how long I could stay there for. I yeah. saw a video on Instagram the other day made of um, a, a photo ship and I think it was a Chieftain or a Navajo or something. Yeah. And out the window they had F-22s and F-35s and the the angle of attack that those jets were holding t- to keep that up um, was very impressive. Absolutely. That, just, that actually took me back to that to that day you and i uh were in the aircraft you and the jet obviously uh me and the, and the cb there and um yeah your your angle of attack 
um, was was quite impressive trying to keep up with our CB, which was which was on descent at full power too, by the way. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> It's good fun. No, that was, that was one. That was one of the most uh, uh, challenging, dissimilar, dissimilar formations I've flown. And that, well, then we did another one later on, didn't we? With the with the CB and the boomerang mm. as well, which was absolutely, um, absolutely. Which and I, got, I don't and, know how challenging that was for you, but uh, well, but it's, the boomerang was a bit easier because the first one speed on the boomerang is about eighty five knots. I did yep. go eighty five knots, so that was a little bit easy, easier. Funny enough, but um, uh, but you know, the great part was just getting. Um, I think. Get, getting that photo shoot we did because we had the gazelle up there, obviously taking some pictures as well. And um, uh, great that um, we got those aircraft types, which I'm sure have never flown in formation before um, and uh, certainly never been photographed before in formation. So, uh, and that great article you wrote for. Yeah, the magazine, the water flying magazine. So, yeah. yeah. Well, it made the front cover as well, that the photo of. Um, I, of the I, CB. I, I always like a couple of shots. Always like a couple yeah. of shots. <laughs> That's true. Mate, um, yeah, that was absolutely a highlight for me flying down there. Um, tell us about what it's been like since getting that endorsement. And um, have you been using the CB much and and taking it out on some adventures? Yeah, we, I mean, look, it, it tends to be one of those aircraft that we we parked out in Gulwa. And the nice part about Gulwa for those that um, know South Australia is it's literally about sort of five. Well, in a normal aircraft, it's about two minutes flight to Lake Alexandrina. In the CB, it's about 15 minutes flight to Lake Alexandrina. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, there's uh, the, the, the waterways around Gore are, are actually really, really good for this sort of thing. Freshwater, and we've we've, um, we've sort of made a bit of a pleasure, we'll keep it on freshwater only just for maintenance purposes, not put it in the salt. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been, per- particularly in summer, it was out on a, you know, pretty much a weekly basis. We'd all take her out and um, go and do a bit of mutual training and um, try to look after each other. Um, Dan was very diligent about drumming into all of us um, uh, gear, landing gear awareness, and um, I'd like to think that we've um, we've we've stuck by the principles and the instruction and direction um, you gave us, which um, was was good. Fortunately, we haven't scared ourselves or come close, but we've we've tried to certainly for the first. Um, I guess um, few months that we flew, we always tried to have two of us in the cockpit, just looking after each other, and making sure neither of us did anything silly. And um, but it's it's um, it's a it's a great aeroplane. It's a you know, and the the best part is just you know sometimes landing, just just parking out there, shutting off the engine, and floating in the middle of the lake and opening the doors and sitting there thinking, I've just you know I'm now floating in a boat, and um, I can jump out and go for a swim if I want. And I love that, um, you know, I spoke at the start there, Jim, you've had an incredible career in aviation from, you know, flying Hornets, um, doing the Empire Tests, flying school. For someone of your experience levels in, in a wide range of aeroplanes, even even the fact that you've got that boomerang that you get to go flying around in, you still get impressed with the fact that you can land on the water and, and, and be sitting out on in the middle of a lake. Oh, absolutely, Dan. And, I, you know, I, I think, you know, you, you, you worked it out that all the people you were with... Um, that week we had last year in April, we're, we're all aviation tragics. Um, and, um, and uh, you know, the nice part about it is we've all got something to learn. You know, I, I love the fact that aviation can provide you as many challenges as you can, as you can possibly take. And um, there's always something uh, you can you can do, something you can learn and something you can get better at. It's one of the things that um, really excites me about it. And one of the things I've, one of the reasons I hope I'll be flying for many years to come, because I think it keeps you sharp, keeps your brain sharp, keeps you thinking. 
um, and keeps you focused because if you if you if you're stupid or you you know, you make a mistake, you can potentially kill yourself. Just before we we go on to to where your career began, I want to discuss a few unique features of the CB. One of those. Um, you spoke already about the undercarriage and, and, well, obviously any amphibian aircraft, we have to have that good understanding of undercarriage up for the water and, and down for land and keep those, you know, really strict um, principles to make sure we don't have an accident. But the actual way that you get the gear to the desired position and the way that it actually moves on the aeroplane is quite unique, isn't it? Well, it's unique in that um, uh, you develop some some very strong muscles in your arms <laughs> yep. while you pump the gear up and you pump the gear down and you pump the flap up and you pump the gear down. And it's it's interesting. I think you and I, Dan, had this conversation about the fact that it was one of the things that I, I think increased gear awareness because you couldn't just flick a switch. You can just put a landing gear handle down and put it up. You actually had to work You had to work for your, your supper, so to speak. Yep. So, you know, um, while you were pumping that gear, <clears throat> you're obviously – um, thinking about where the landing gear was at all times, and I, I actually, I actually found that a feature that um, I thought was enhancing. It was, um, you know, but Steve and I have talked about putting a, a hydraulic pump in there, and um, you know, just having a gear selector, and uh, we, we sort of both agree that it's actually good that you've got to, you got to, you got you to work for your supper to uh, pump it up and down because it does make you really, really aware of what um, configuration you're in. The other unique aspect is that. Uh, amazing front window or front hatch that you you throw the control well, actually you remove the control column don't you on the, yes. on the co-pilot side there and um, lift up that hatch and and basically walk out the front of the airplane yeah absolutely and it, it, you know it's quite cool particularly when you beach it you just open that up or before you beach it, you can open it up and just uh, taxi in with you know um, either you know well you know if you've got someone with you just out there ready to go to uh, chuck a chuck a mooring line on, um, and uh, if you if you if you're beaching it, just um, step straight out onto the uh, onto the sand. Yeah, it's almost like a float plane in a way, just like having that that the walkway that you can just get straight yeah. on and off. It's a beautiful aeroplane, mate, and it was such a pleasure, as I mentioned, there to get down there and spend a week with you guys and and do that training and flying. I think mm. ended up with about. 45 hours or something like that in the CB, um, which was pretty crazy. But um, so I think, I, I think Dan, I think you can pretty unequivocally say you're the most experienced CB pilot <laughs> in Australia at this time. Potentially, yeah. yeah. Uh, which is pretty funny. And actually flying a lot of different airplanes. I think Tiger Moth, the Moth Miner, got in the uh, in the Marchetti jet with you, mate, which was an absolute career highlight. Yeah. Um, so what a week. I want to jump back now, Jim, and, and talk about how you got into aviation because you and I share something in common with the fact that both of our fathers kind of probably got us into aviation. Can you Absolutely. share a little bit about your, yeah. um, your old man's story? Sure, sure. So dad dad was um, was a pilot during the Second World War and um, the the first aircraft he actually you know flew operationally was the CAC Boomerang. The Boomerang's got an interesting story, so... Um, December 7, 1941, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbour and um, Australia had no fighters at the time. We had, well, the UK couldn't spare us any Spitfires for obvious reasons. Um, we had Kitty Hawks on order from the US and for obvious reasons after the Pearl Harbour attack, they um, they decided they were going to hang on to them. Um, and the government went to the Commonwealth Aircraft Corporation and said, look, we're, um, we don't have any fighters. We need something like ASAP as soon as we can, as soon as possible. 
and they said, oh, well, you know, not sure. And they said, well, can you think about it? And um, they were producing a Pratt & Whitney 1830 under licence at Lidcombe in New South Wales. And they said, look, this is the engine, but, you know, can you do something with this and build us something? And uh, they said, well, think about it. And they met in January 1942, literally, you know, four weeks after the Pearl Harbour attack. And they said, yeah, we think we can do something. And um, the government guy said, right, go for it. Um, design and build or something and uh, so they um, they created the boomerang and the boomerang did its first flight at the end of May of 1942 so from build as a fighter design and build as a fighter aircraft to first flight was less than five months which insane is absolutely insane if you're a student of industrial history you know there were probably I don't know somewhere between five and ten nations in the world Australia at the time had a population of about I think around eight million um, you know, we were we were an economy based on agriculture and mining. You know, far more you know today on mining, obviously, but um, you know we we did not have a we weren't a we weren't a, a technology based economy, and um, we did it. You know, we we created um, we created something, and you know, Boomerang wasn't the greatest fighter in the world, but um, you know, we did it in the space of five months when there was a real threat, and I think it's testimony to what Australians can do when they're really backed into a corner, that they can step up and, uh, and produce something. And Boomerang was the result. Uh, as I say, it's got um, some interesting handling characteristics, but it's a really, really great part of Australian history. And the fact that my, my father was um, in the first squadron to take them into operations obviously has a special place. And the fact that the aircraft I have is actually um, one of the aircraft dad, dad flew predominantly well, dad's aircraft um you know what's originals you know there's a fair bit that's been had to be rebuilt but it's it's great to have that historical connection and um i think you know that um you know as a young kid listening to stories from a father from his mates who he flew with during the war um my godfather um jeff cousins who my father died when i was nine years old nine years old and my my godfather you know so basically became my second father um who flew with him and uh, so i'd always been interested and I think from the in aviation I think or been exposed to aviation particularly military aviation and I think from you know from my earliest days all I ever wanted to do was be a pilot in the air force you know I was fortunate enough to um, jump through a few of the hurdles and um, slip through a few of the cracks that would have caught me otherwise and um, and uh, and got to fly some great airplanes in the air force and had a you know a great basically 32 year career as a as an air force pilot so your your airplane that you flew uh, mainly in the um, in the RAF there was the Hornet. Can you tell us a bit about like some of the great experiences you had flying the Hornets in the RAF? Yeah, look, I I, I was really, really lucky after um you know went through the Air Force coming in the Defence Academy and then parts course, so I flew CT four and Mackie did a couple of years on the Caribou before before I went off to fly fighters and had a really great time. And that that the Caribou was a really interesting aircraft because of you know obviously great style performance, but it's where I um I got some serious um, radial engine experience. Um, always wanted to fly fighters, and then um, finally got the re-roll to um to uh, to fighters, and and was fortunate enough to fly the Hornet for um you know nearly ten years, which was the the majority of my sort of you know permanent Air Force time. Um, Hornet was a beautiful aircraft, just you know, well designed, fabulous HMI human machine interface. Um, one of the first aircraft that really took um, the context of, as I say, the human machine interface to the next level and, and set the benchmark for 
many aircraft that subsequently followed. Um, you know, the whole HOTAS system, which was hands-on throttles and, and stick, which basically allowed you to do everything without taking off, taking your hands and hands off the, um, the throttle and stick. Um, and, and you know, look, fabulous performance, fabulous systems, um, good weapon systems, fabulous handling. You know, great high alpha. You you talked Dan before about the. Um, the high alpha performance um, flying next to, uh, I think it was a Chieftain or something like that, the Hornet. You know, very happy at up to 35 alpha and, and in the more uh, 35 degrees angle attack and um, uh, in the, the the more modern software upgrades, even greater angles of attack. Um, and that includes the the classic Hornet that I flew and, and, and now the uh, the Super Hornet that um, we still fly um, and that everyone will, will know of um Due to the the uh, latest iteration of um, the movie Top Gun Maverick, but you know, lovely aircraft, my favourite, basically my favourite aeroplane, and the aircraft I actually have the most hours on. Speaking of Top Gun Maverick, mate, how many times have you seen it now? I look I only only um, I, I think I've I've only seen it sixteen times, so oh, okay. um, <laughs> I'll probably you know I've, I haven't quite got into all the nuances yet, but I, I, by the time I've seen it, you know, sort of twenty six, twenty seven times, I'll, I'll probably I'll probably have picked up any flaws it has. When, when did you realise it was the story of Jim Wally? Well, as soon as I, as soon as the opening scene started, you know, as soon as they cast Tom Cruise, was as it? soon as they started, You're... yeah, absolutely. As soon as they, <laughs> you know, I just thought if they, I, I probably would have preferred a slightly taller stunt double, but you know, it was all good. <laughs> oh, very good, um, mate. You um, got an opportunity, amazing opportunity, to go to the Empire Test Pilot School and 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 learn all those skills about test flying. Um, Tell us about what that's like to go away and overseas and 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 study at an institution like that. Uh, look, a fabulous opportunity. I, I, you know, like I, when I was a, a fighter pilot, seventy-five something in um, the Northern Territory, I was, I was probably the squadron geek. Um, yeah, the fighter pilot geek. So if someone wanted to know how um, some weird aspect of the radar worked, um, go and ask Jim. Or how some weird weapon system worked, go and ask Jim. You know, I've, I've always, you know, I've, I've got a a degree in, in science and physics. And so I've, I've always loved technology and, you know, my, my bent was always um, to be involved in that. And, you know, the, the test flying career was, um, you know, something I always, I always wanted to do. Um, so when I, when I was selected to go, um, was absolutely, absolutely, you know, wrapped, um, very, very fortunate. Um, and I, you know, I had a very, very blessed career in the Air Force and I had great, um, leadership throughout my Air Force career, you know, great commanding officers, great, you know, flight commanders, executive officers who supported a lot of my, um, you know, uh, my my aspirations. Who either saw in me some potential or decided it was just easier to get him get rid of me out of the fighter force um, by sending me off to be a test pilot. But um, going to test pilots in the UK, really unique experience. You know, it's um, uh, about you know, just over 20 people on the course every year. It's a 12-month course, um, every nation on the world. You know, we had Italians, uh, Norwegians, Dutch, South Africans, um, you know, Americans, you know, obviously Brits, basically very, very multinational. One of the great things about it was, from my point of view, that, you know, when I got over there, I, I have to confess, I felt a bit intimidated. I'm, I'm flying with, you know, probably some of the best pilots in the world, um, which I didn't count myself as one. Um, but I realised, um, you know, pretty soon that, you know, Aussie pilots, um, you know, can mix it with the best. You know, we, we should be very, very um, 
we should be very proud of, you know, um, our training of our systems of how we do things, and uh, just feel feel confident about our our capabilities. And it was a, a really fascinating year. You literally would do two flights in an aircraft, and then you go solo. So it was like two flights in a Jaguar, and right, take her up by yourself. A couple of flights wow. in a you know a, a Hunter, and uh, take her off. Um, I remember doing a, a solo in a BAC one eleven, which is a sort of you know passenger jet, hundred plus seat passenger jet with uh, my French mate on course. Um, he was on his he was on his second flight. I was on my third flight, which was my solo when we went off doing instrument approaches around the south of England in this you know large jet you know passenger aircraft, and it was just wow. like it was just absolutely fabulous. You know, I've never worked so hard in my life. It was long hours. It was, you know, one hour of flying plus 24 hours of preparation and report writing and doing all that sort of stuff. But it was one of the best years of my um, my career in the Air Force, blessed by really, really good uh, staff at the the, the school. Um, a chap there who was my, my principal tutor guy named Dave Best, who remains a close friend, absolutely fabulous. Um, you know, one of the most talented pilots and, and talented leaders I've ever met, uh, who um, you know um, really looked after the three of us. I was I was um, I was uh, coupled up with the um, the Norwegian guy named Bjorn Rignestad, who was an F sixteen pilot, great guy. Another guy, Maz Cahoon, was a Royal Air Force um, Herc pilot. Um, we all got on really well. Um, we maintained a sense of humour even when we were writing reports at two o'clock in the morning. Um, and we had this great tutor who um, who really looked after us and really really wanted us to succeed, which is um, you know is a great environment to be in um, yeah. when you're doing that sort of stuff. What skills did you learn? And what how did you put those in place in in the real world once you come out of that? Did you actually use any of that for future uh, roles in the air force? Or yeah, no, definitely, definitely. So after I graduated test pilot school, I came back to um, Adelaide to the aircraft research and development unit, which is the you know the air force's flight test, well, air force and army's flight test establishment. So um, yeah, pretty much when you came back, you hit the ground running, and uh, it was straight into it and using the skills. You know, the, the great thing about test pilot school, you go through all these different phases. There's you know there's phases on on handling qualities. Um, you know, aircraft handling qualities. Um, there's phases on aircraft performance. Um, there's there's phases on system performance, um, and you learn to very very um, objectively um, uh, look at at a platform and, and look at systems and find its good points and often its bad points, and um, you know be able to quantify and um, evaluate what it can and can't do, and, and hopefully help. Help make those systems better where it's um, where it's required. So, you know, I find I found myself back at uh, back in Edinburgh at the Aircraft Research and Development Unit, working on a whole range of things. You know, it was putting night vision goggles on the F eighteen. Uh, it was um, putting the ASRAM uh, advanced short range air to air missile on the um, on the on the classic Hornet, um, which involved a lot of really really intensive flight tests because you have to deal with things like flutter. You have to deal with obviously all the software. Um, you have to deal with different load configurations and, and clear everything. So um, that sort of thing, you know, um, did a lot of work on helmet-mounted displays, which was absolutely fascinating, a lot of work on electro electronic warfare systems. Um, so, you know, all that training in, on test pilot school, you know, pretty quickly um, you, you, were, you were put in the firing line and, uh, yep, let's use it and uh, start flying and start writing those reports. What does a report entail and, and how does that, like, 
go who does that go to and like what does that then be used for for future I don't know. Well, I don't even know what to ask. Like, how does that, what, what, what you put on paper, how does yeah. that end up evaluating something in the future? Well, it, it ends up supporting a capability. So, you know, if you, um, if you're doing a, a, a report on a, um, you know, night vision goggles, for example, yeah, it, it comes up. It, you know, it says, look, this is acceptable flight. It's acceptable to put in the squadron. Um, you know, uh, it, it will recommend sort of operational limits that you know you should do it on. In these sort of conditions, you should do it on. Uh, you should um, you, you should be able to operate at this sort of level. You know, you, you you get to actually exercise a fair bit of influence about whether something will will be used or not, um, and potentially in in combat operations. And uh, um, and that's why it's so important you are trained. It's so important that you're objective and and um, and hopefully reasonably articulate about it. But um, it, it will form the basis of a um, you know a defence capability. For um, okay. you know, for for an aircraft or for a missile system or for an electronic warfare system. It sounds like all of this that you've just talked about after test pilot school has gone a long way into the future here, where I currently know what you're doing, and and the listeners will know now. But um, you then had to leave the air force and and you went out and started your own business. It sounds like all those skills that you've learnt in the past there have, have helped set up that business. But tell us a little bit about what it was like or how you set up that business Nova Systems because it's quite an interesting story um, you know coming from your doing your MBA to, to where it is today yeah you know Dan it was I mean I, you know I, it's probably the typical story of I, um, I ended up in Adelaide and um, met someone in Adelaide that sort of basically ruined my Air Force career so it was either choose Air Force or or choose um, wife and um, uh, I'd, I'd lost first wife in the Air Force and uh, thought it would be careless to lose a second, so decided it was maybe time for a career change. I'd I'd done a um a master's in business administration at the University of Adelaide, um, which um I found really interesting. And I just thought there weren't there weren't too many fighter pilots that had MBAs, and I thought if I'm going to progress my Air Force career when I started, it, it would be it would be useful to to you know have that 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 business qualification, particularly when I was sort of off in Canberra or somewhere like that doing Air Force headquarters type stuff or Russell type stuff. And um, I was in a situation where I, I had a really good group of uh, study mates who we we um, just used to hang around and do our group assignments together and just stick together and do subjects together. And I, I went off to do an entrepreneurship course. Uh, and um, at the time, I didn't know what entrepreneurship – well, I didn't know how to spell entrepreneurship and I didn't know <laughs> what it was. I just went off with my mates to do this entrepreneurship program, and you know, lectures were generally between four thirty and seven thirty, and four thirty in the afternoon, seven thirty at night. And uh, so I turn up occasionally in a flying suit um, with a bit of helmet hair and um, you know, oxygen mask face, and looking a bit scruffy um, in a flying suit with a few badges on. Um, so people, you know, initially looked at me sideways after I'd been doing it for a couple of years. They just, yeah, that's Jim. Um, and, and I ended up in this entrepreneurship program and uh, the professor, the first assignment was a group assignment, which we we did funnily enough on um, helping get tuna to the Japanese market by sticking basically popsicles up their bums um, so they'd stay fresher longer. And uh, we did okay on that. Anyway, the final assignment was an individual assignment and um, – I spoke to the professor at the time when he gave out this. And I said, "Look, professor, I'm obviously you know uh, an Air Force pilot, 
and um, I don't ever intend being an entrepreneur. I'm just here because of my friends. Could you just give me another Harvard Business School case study? Because you know, I don't really have any ideas about a business plan. The, the assignment was, you know, come up with a business plan for for something. And um, anyway, he said to me, Jim, look, I'd really like you to think about something. And uh, I said, look, I'll, I'll think about it. Came back next week. And I said, look, Professor, I've really I've thought, but just I'm not, I'm in the Air Force. I'm never going to do anything you know, sort of in this space and sort of, you know, really enjoy it. But and he said, he said to me, um, I understand they call fighter pilots knuckleheads. And I said, oh, that's interesting you know that, Professor. And I said, yes, yeah, they do. And they said, um, and, and why is that? And they said, oh, well, and I said, look, there's some there's some belief that we're not that bright, which obviously is not true. And he said, yeah, that's interesting. He said, look, Jim, this is an entrepreneurship course. I want you to think of a business or you're going to fail. Do you understand that? And I said, yeah, I guess I do. So maybe I wasn't that bright. Maybe I wasn't knucklehead. <laughs> Um, the result of that was I came up with a business plan for a independent professional, so engineering professional services company um, that um, you know was independent of the, the the major equipment manufacturers, the you know the original equipment manufacturers, and provided services directly to Commonwealth. And partly because um, when I was doing uh, the the integration of the ASRAM missile onto the um, F eighteen, it was hard work to get extra support you know extra commercial support because all the people we needed that you know were not in uniform worked for you know major companies like raytheon or bae or boeing and they were all sort of you know involved in manufacture of these these sorts of equipment so i thought there was an opportunity to create a, an independent organization that just didn't have those associations and could just provide services to the commonwealth anyway uh did that mba went okay and a couple of or probably about a year later um decided that i was going to stay in adelaide and was having lunch with um and i was going to leave the air force and was having lunch with the um aforementioned entrepreneurship professor and said look i'm going to leave the air force who in adelaide is going to have the great good fortune to employ me um you know distinguished graduate of the, the business school and etc 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 and he said um he said jim I need you to just let you in on a few facts. I said, what's that? He said, you know, we had a conversation about knuckleheads. And I said, yes, I remember that well. He said, you know, no one's going to give you a job. I said, what do you mean? He said, all you're capable of doing is dropping bombs on people and shooting airplanes out of the sky. I said, are you serious? He said, yeah, I'm deadly serious. He said, what happened to that business plan you wrote about the, um, you know, the flight test independent engineering services company? I said, oh, I don't know. It's on my bookshelf somewhere. And he said, was it true or did you make it all up? And I said, no, no, it was all true. And he said, well, why don't you start that company? And that was the start of Nova Systems with um, with my business partner, Pete Nikolov. So we started the company and despite the incompetence of senior management, um, the company's grown to over a thousand people and uh, operates um, you know, globally with you know offices all over the world and um, all over Australia. And um, yeah, we've done, we've done okay. We've done okay. And it's helped okay. support my... Help support my bad aviation habit. That's that's insane. That story. I love hearing it. Like uh, you even mentioned it before in, in another in another podcast. I heard you speak about about being an accidental entrepreneur. Absolutely, um, think... absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I am. Um, that and, was, I that was... and I accidentally became the the inaugural chief entrepreneur of South Australia too, which I don't know quite how how that happened either. And like you said, mate, it has has grown to a business of over a thousand staff. Can can you believe that it would have ever have got to that? position where uh, it is today no 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 at the time i just at the time i just wanted to feed my family and um probably about a year or two in i thought actually we, well i reckon we've got some potential i reckon we can actually create a great australian technology company and um, you know part of the inspiration for that was the story of the boomerang that you know when we were 
when we put up against the wall that you know Australians can do some really good stuff, and we've got some really really um, bright people. And you know, it was that experience on test flight school. It was like we're as good as anyone else in the world, and our engineers are as good as anyone else in the world. And I thought, you know, we we can actually do something. that will you know do good things for the world. It'll do good things for you know um, for safety and security of people. Um, it'll do good things for things like climate change. It'll do good things for things like power. Um, transport and you know we can actually make a real contribution and um you know and I, I guess that's the thing i'm i'm most proud of now is that we've got a great company with great people who 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 literally are changing the world and making it a better place that's an amazing story mate as you mentioned that that has helped you uh, pursue your career in aviation nerdiness and and having airplanes uh, to be able Absolutely. to fly and have a lot of fun with one of those airplanes i've already mentioned the the marchetti s211 um Yep. It, it's a, it's a fighter jet trainer basically, isn't it? For those who haven't yeah, yeah, seen yeah, yeah. what that is, um, yeah. had a great run with you in it, showing me its capabilities and and filling up spew bags and all that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> that was me. I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I want to touch Danny, on. Danny, you didn't. Uh, you didn't need to. You didn't need to play that part on the video. I was going to say a thing about it. No, that was. Uh, Look, I'm proud. I'll, I'll wear that as a badge of honour, mate. Well, you know, you know it was good, mate, because the, the, the good thing is the day we went flying, um, I was running a special deal on um, spew bags, which I normally nick off Qantas flights. And, uh, you, know, you know, the deal was if you used it, you got to keep it. So, yeah, obviously, yeah. It's, it's in your collection there somewhere. If passengers want to use those spear bags, it's a it's a souvenir. They take it home, and I mm-hmm. I, I remember taxiing back in past uh, Lindo's house there, you know, up on the uh, where the hangers are and everything. Yeah. And all, everyone was on the balcony and having a look, and I was holding the spear bag up with pride, mate, because <laughs> you, you threw it around. I think you you wanted to show me what that thing could do and what it was like to be a fighter pilot, which was pretty cool. Um, good, uh, good so fun. I, was, I, I was very impressed. But in aviation careers, you know, I'm I'm. I'm starting to get up there with hours. I've been in the industry for now for 13 years, nearly 6,000 hours or something. And um, touch wood, I've not had much go wrong emergency scenario type situations. Yeah. I know you had a, an incident with the with the jet there. And we're talking about a jet aircraft here. flies very fast. As you mentioned, approach speed, 105 knots or something. And you had an, an engine go on you at a, at a low speed. And I, I remember you showing me the video clip from Seven News or something like that. And yep. there's Jim Wally looking literally like Tom Cruise standing in front of his jet on jet in this paddock with, with almost a smile on his face. Um, as cool just and calm clear, as anyone else. Just to, be, Dan, just to be clear, I did not orchestrate it. That was not... <laughs> I did, exactly, yeah. I did Come not want to be this paddock at this time. And, uh, yeah. yeah. But, um, mate, how do, you, how do you go about handling... Uh, a situation like that in in real life when when you are faced with something and how did you handle that in in the in the aircraft for people well, to kind I, of I think, you learn know, off the the, the, first, the first thing is that as a test pilot you're trained that it's the most important thing even if you're about to die is still look cool um and so still, still sound cool calm and collected and if you sound if you survive then you know You've got no excuse for for looking cool, calm, and collected. Um, you know, it's about two o'clock in the morning when you wake up with the hot sweats, and you have, you know, you decide you're going to have a glass of whiskey. Then that um, maybe it comes home. But uh, look, I think I, I think as aviation professionals, um, Dan, as you are, I think we just go we go back to our training when, um, and that, that's why we practice our drills. We practice our, um, you know, our our, our bold face items. Um, or our phase ones, and um, we just we just revert back to you know how we're taught, uh, and do what's required. And um, you know you can throw your arms in the air, but there's no one there to rescue you. 
uh, no one's going to help you. So um, you do you do what you need to do, and um, and you do your best. And um, I guess on that particular day, you know, engine failed around six or seven hundred feet. The options were limited. There was some um, power lines, trees, and death, and um, uh, there was a, a paddock, you know, um, ninety degrees off the uh, off the nose that I could get into. Unfortunately, it had a centre pivot in there which I had to get under. A bit of good luck as well, and um, you know, I'm sure you'll attest to this, Dan. There's, um, uh, it's better to be lucky than good, um, and it, that's a popular saying, particularly amongst pilots, test pilots, and fighter pilots. Things on the day went well. Um, you know, I, I think you know my training helped, um, my familiarity with the aircraft helped, and um, uh, fortunately, it all worked out well. And the um, the jet came down pretty much in intact, except for losing 14 inches off the tail after we went after I went through the the centre pivot. But um, you know, 12 months later, was flying again. So um, yeah, it was. Um, I think uh, that's that's why we practice engine failures, why we practice emergencies, why it's so critical that we do. Um, and get good at it and uh, one day one day it might save your life mate i I normally end the uh, episode here with a splash and dash questionnaire i know we have got a little bit off topic uh, talking about your amazing career flying in the air force and 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 creating that business we're going to jump into the splash and dash questionnaire which is some kind of more rapid fire questions about seaplanes get us back onto the seaplane path before we end this episode excellent just be Um, gentle dan be gentle with me you know i'm a very inexperienced seaplane pilot so don't (laughs) don't don't make me look too foolish you're a seaplane owner mate so uh, you're very experienced you haven't flown a lot of seaplanes in your in your um, hugely experienced but less experienced seaplane career. Hmm. What what's been your favourite so far that you have flown? No, well, given the fact that they total about three, I would have to say the CB. But I, I actually the one that I, w- w- was a lot of fun, um, you know, through these friends uh, when we were in Canada was the um, the Beaver. I think that's just a you know a classic classic aeroplane on flights. But um, yeah, I love the CB because I just think. It's beautiful on the water. It's a challenge on the land. It's um, it's just such a different aircraft, and it's got such great history. You mentioned Alaska there, like uh, bef- earlier before. You flew the Cub over there as well in Alaska. And whereabouts did you actually, do that? Was it, that it was, it was, actually, I, I take that back. It wasn't the Cub. It was the Piper Pacer. I think it was the Piper Pacer. Pacer. Okay, on yep. flights, it was side by side. So, I apologise, erroneous error there. Um, Piper <laughs> Pacer on flights, which didn't have a lot of yeah. power, but flying around Alaska was just fabulous. You know, it's beautiful scenery up there, and um. Yeah, it was um was fabulous. I'm flew out of a place called Talkeetna, which was Talkeetna, north yeah. of um, Anchorage. Beautiful. I've I've seen a lot of videos out of there. It looks like a great spot. That'll be yeah. on the list one day. Um, mm. Lakes, rivers, maybe open ocean, coral cay. Where where have you? Um, well, where's been your favourite spot to land a seaplane so far? Somewhere down Lake Alexandrina, there, mate. Yeah, look, you know that river, that little river run we did, which was, um, you know, it wasn't ridiculously tight, but it was like a, a little um, slalom course. Um, yep. I like those challenging, you know, landing on, on big open water is you know, great and pulling up and just throwing, um, you know, turning the engine off and just listening to silence and just feeling the waves lap against it. But it's, you know, I, it, it really, really good when you've got some uh, a spot that's a bit more challenging. And I remember doing... Um, landing there with you with uh, with some glassy water and um just real satisfaction when you when you get it when you get it right you know you don't always but real satisfaction when you when you get it right and say hey i'm starting to, i'm starting to get the hang of this 
Yeah, there's a great photo in that magazine article that I wrote, uh, a big overall shot from the chopper yeah. uh, of us in that little slalom. You can see the path that we've taken yeah. as we you know, landed yeah. before and, and step taxied through, step turned through the, the kind of chicane that we called it, yes. I think, and then out. Yeah. Yeah. It, was, uh, it was a nice little challenge, that one. Yeah, um, beautiful. If you could choose any other seaplane, what would be the dream seaplane to fly? Actually, I, I tell you, the, um, I reckon one of the Grumman's, I reckon either the... Um, Either the, the goose or the widgeon. Um, I, I'd really, um, I think they're just absolute classic aircraft. Um, and I hope one day I'll get an opportunity to, um, to fly a widgeon or a goose. Yeah, well, you can actually fly them, the goose, especially out of um, Lake Hood, I believe now, to do yeah. seaplane training. So yeah, that, yeah. I think that's one of my uh, one of my goals as well to go on the goose. And that that probably stems from that a bit like the CB, hey, like tail wheel and, and yeah, floating yeah, yeah, hull. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Keep absolutely. But I, I just they're classic, they're classic aircraft from that generation. And you know, if you look at seaplanes and how they've evolved since, they've, there's not a lot that does a lot better than those aircraft of the um, you know the 1940s. Uh, what about best looking seaplane? Have you got anything that stands out as uh, as, as a good looking seaplane? Um, um, the CB one that doesn't make that list. The, the, the one that's not is the <laughs> CP. Um, I reckon the. Uh, yeah, well, again, I go to the goose and the ballad. I reckon they just they're good looking aircraft. I just yeah. um, you know in a, in a in a classic sort of way. They're um, yeah, I think they're they're good looking airplanes. Yeah, it's funny actually to think about good good looking. You know, on that photo shoot day where we had the the gazelle with the boomerang and the the, the CB, we, yeah. I taxied the plane over and parked it next to the. Um, this, I think it was next to the boomerang, wasn't it? And yeah. the boomerang was next to the jet. Yeah. It could have been. You couldn't have got a, a, a three different aeroplanes if you tried. Totally. Could you? Absolutely. I mean, Absolutely. And Absolutely. but yeah, especially at, next to a boomerang, the CB does not uh, stand out in the looks department. Well, sure, interesting but. enough, I don't think the boomerang is necessarily the most beautiful looking aeroplane, but it, it's a it's a brutal looking aeroplane. <laughs> it's a you know combat combat aircraft, and uh, you know the jet's a good looking aeroplane. Is a good looking aeroplane as as you know, the, the Hornet's a really good looking aeroplane for example. It is. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a few on display now, isn't there? Speaking well, of- yeah. In fact, the one I flew at the Aircraft Research and Development Unit is now resident in the South Australian Aviation Museum. So I get going, you know, look at, um, I get going, spend some time with the Hornet. I spent most of my F-18 time in, actually, which is wow. nice. So now all the aircraft I flew in the Air Force are in museums, and obviously I'll be following soon thereafter. <laughs> Do you go down there in your flight suit still, mate? Or just yeah, occasionally just go down there. At, yeah. I, they give me the keys. I can go in there at night and make jet noises and just pretend <laughs> I'm still a fighter pilot. Actually, I think it was Brendy who told me that you keep a comb in your top pocket, don't you, as well? For, and probably for that for that reason, when you had the engine. So it's, it's it's all it's always important to look good. It's always important yeah. to look good. Yeah. Well, on that note, Jim, it's been uh, it's been incredible having you on the show, and thank you very much for taking the time out to. Share your stories. Uh, I know not a hugely experienced seaplane, but a lot of other life lessons there that uh, has been interesting hearing. And uh, Jim Wally, I'd love to thank you for coming on the step. Hey, um, love to be here, Dan. Um, you know, uh, thanks for all your viewers for putting up with an hour of my um, my narrative. Hopefully, you'll edit it down to something far less. But um, <laughs> mate, great to talk, and uh, so looking forward to catching up again. And that's the show for today, folks. Thanks so much to Jim for taking the time to share his incredible story. Now, as I previously mentioned, I wrote an article on my week with Jim and the guys. The article was published in the Seaplane Pilots Association 
Water Flying Magazine, the September-October issue of 2022. You may be able to search back old issues of the magazine for those SPA members to go check that one out. If not, you've got to become a member today, folks. Once again, everyone, it was great to be back. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. And until next time, folks, thanks for coming on The Step. <laughs>